Welcome to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, and I'll be bringing the message again today. And it's on the book of Revelation. I'm doing a verse-by-verse study through this book. And this week, we find ourselves once again in chapter 17. And the context for today is Revelation chapter 17. And it's going to be verses 9 through 18. I know that is a lot of verses, especially considering the pace at which I am able to cover these verses. And so you probably know right off the bat, I don't plan on finishing all these verses, but I do want to get started. It's a very difficult passage, and one that I have been told by many is a very confusing passage. So I want to read the context today. If you want to follow along, I encourage you, if you have a a copy of uh, God's Word, that you open it to Revelation chapter 17, and I will begin reading in verse 9. The Word of God reads, beginning in verse 9 of Revelation 17. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. And they have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Now, I want to stop there as far as the reading, because I, I you, it just, you'd be surprised how much time the, the reading itself takes up, and we're going to be covering it in the, uh, the we'll be covering what's in the verse anyway as we go through it. So, uh, with that in mind, I want to begin today with verse 9, and I, it's a very important verse. I know that when you look at this, it's, it can be confusing, you know, that one is, one is not, and you, I've had so many people say the, the, the verbiage is just so confusing, but it doesn't have to be. So I want to try to break it down in bite-sized pieces, and perhaps we can gain some insight into what John is telling us here in this wonderful book. Look at verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Uh, this is a, uh, this is what he's telling us is, now I want you to listen very carefully Uh, And I'll do my best to make it clear. When it says, here is the mind which has wisdom, that's just one way of saying, uh, take a closer look. Um, A a closer inspection, perhaps, could be used here. We want you to look more deeply into this. In other words, don't just go with the surface uh, meaning of what you see here. There's much more here than what you first will read. That's the way I interpret this. If you want to look more deeply into this, uh, it is a very unusual phrase, by the way, and it introduces us to what I think here is a a, a complex part of this vision that John sees. And if it's there to to tell us this, then it's probably something that we ought it ought to get our attention. So let, let me draw your attention to it. It says, "Here is the mind which has wisdom." Now, this is not the first time John has done this. If we go back to Revelation chapter thirteen. And I think it's worthy to go back there, so I will. In Revelation 13, 18, this is the chapter that deals with the, re- the revelation of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And in verse 18, which is the last verse in that chapter, he says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, we went through this. 
it becomes very clear we don't know who this is. We don't have that understanding at this point because this hasn't happened yet. And this won't happen until the tribulation gets started. By then, the church has been called out. But yet, I want you to understand that when it talks about the wisdom here in Revelation 13, 18, and then over here in Revelation 17, 9, I believe it's talking about those who have spiritual understanding. In other words, this is not for the lost. The lost are not going to understand this, and many of the Christians who have spiritual minds won't understand it. That is, the ones living in today. So I think this is a direct appeal to those living at that time that they see this and this begins to happen, that they understand that this is what they need to be looking at as far as this chapter is goes. In other words, it's for those who have spiritual minds. Those who, who have spiritual wisdom are going to understand the revelation that is about to follow. Not, not necessarily those of today that have spiritual understanding because everything is not in place for all of this to take place. In other words, this is going to be, yeah, it's still in the future. It's still going to be after the church has been called out. And we don't know how the earth, uh, the government, the religious, is all going to be twisting and turning to prepare and to shape itself towards what is being talked about and taught here in Revelation 17. So, without just doing a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, Maybe here is what he is telling us, that maybe those who are alive at that time are going to have the best chance of understanding this. And understanding what? Well, look at what he says next in verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, I also want to bring out the fact that many last week got confused over verse 8. Verse 8 is difficult, and I know some of you who are listening probably were one of those who asked the question. But I want you to know those who are wondering about the beast are those who are the unbelievers. The believers during the time of the tribulation are not going to wonder at all. The wonder here is, look at what verse 8 says, and those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So they're amazed at this man. They're amazed at, at the resurrection that, that they're going to believe is true. They're going to be amazed at what comes out of his mouth. They're going to be followers of him. They're going to be believers in what he says. And remember now, he's going to take a seat in the temple and proclaim himself to be God himself. And so that is going, and, you, and you, I know your, your first thought might be, well, who would believe that? Well, everyone on the earth is going to believe it. All will believe it, whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, that's the way I said last week, it's just like coming into the backside of this, it's the way of saying all unbelievers will believe it. No believer at that time will believe it. In fact, this is the same verbiage is picked up here in Revelation chapter 17. Those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was. They're going to be amazed at this man. So the wonder here is related to unbelievers. Believers here have a different mindset. 
They have a regenerated heart. They have a new heart. They have a new mind. They have understanding. They have spiritual insight. And so those people at that time can look at this and understand the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, we don't have really to do very much in this chapter to explain what's actually transpiring here. Remember, we began in verse 1 talking about uh, the seven angel comes here and he talks about the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And we said that's uh, on, on the authority over many peoples, tribes, and nations, and cultures. Uh, and then it says, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. We don't have a hard time associating with that. And then it talks about the woman in verse 4 and 5. And then, and actually in verse 6, and then in verse 8, it talks about the beast. Uh, and then, so here in verse 9, he's picking up this description here. And so I, I want to try to un, get, a, get to some understanding here of the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sits. Well, let's take a look at that. If you go back for a moment to verse 3, the beast, full of blasphemous names, is depicted as having seven heads and ten horns. Seven heads and ten horns. Well, what does that mean? Well, we look more closely and we find out the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And this is what he's talking about here. The word mountain doesn't necessarily mean a high mountain. Uh, it can mean a small hill. It can mean a small mountain. For example, you see that in, in several places in Matthew and then also in John. Uh, many people associate with Rome, the city built on seven hills. And most people, in fact, a lot of commentaries are just flat-out dogmatic on this point, and they pretty much shut down the interpretation of the whole verse based on the fact that Rome is known as a city of seven, built on seven hills. Well, I think that's good to remember that. I think that uh, it's, it's, uh, to remember that uh, this is what they're known for, and so I think it's, it's, it's pretty obvious there. But I think it's an allusion to the seven hills and the seven uh, and, and uh, Rome. But throughout the history of the city of Rome, it has been described as the city of seven hills. So I don't think it can just be referenced to that. I, I think there's got to be more here. And the reason I say that is look at verse 9 again. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. <coughs> on which the woman sits. Now, if it was going to be just Rome and it's built on seven hills, we really wouldn't need any special insight. We wouldn't need to dig any deeper, for it would be obvious. So I'm reluctant not to see something of Rome as the main feature in this interpretation, but it can't just be that. I think that is the, the main point, is it? it we've got to look broader than that. And, and so many times I have learned in Bible study, if you read something in a commentary and you, you go with it and you think, well, that's all there is, man, you could be missing some of the main points. Uh, don't take it as that's all there is. But So I think it's, it, it's, there's much more that is here because of the fact that that would be too obvious. There's got to be something deeper here. Uh, false religious uh, that we're looking at here is bigger than, than, in fact, it's going to cover the whole world. So there's much more to that. And he says that there is something more, verse 10, and there are seven kings. Oh, now we get into uh, get into that. So when you look at this, you see verse 10, and they are seven kings. <coughs> Excuse me. So we add seven kings to the, uh, to the equation here. So now you have seven, 
Seven heads equals seven mountains and seven kings. So that gets to be a little bit more, uh, at least intriguing, that we've got to dig a little bit further to see what this can possibly mean. So there's seven kings added to the mix. Now the beast is vastly more than one city. We know that. Uh, the empire covers more than one city. It's going to cover really most of the world at that time. It will literally cover all the world. But there's so much that uh, we cannot say dogmatically. But a call for spiritual discernment means there's got to be something more <coughs> than just a geographical uh, reference to a city with seven hills. In other words, I think it's more than Rome. Or, as I said, we wouldn't need the spiritual wisdom. So, it says we definitely need it here. And so, we take that and we look at this. And so, what are we talking about here? Well, there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. You very simply look at that as a past, present, and future. Seven kings, past, present, and future. Then here he comes. He must remain a little while. What are these? What does it mean? Well, listen. They're, they're to give to you, as simply as I can, the heads are on the beast. That's the first thing to notice. They're on the beast. Notice that. They're not on the harlot or the religious system. They're on the beast. The religious system is one world unified religion, but the heads are on the beast. And the beast is the political figure, not the religious one. That will all come into play a little later. So we can overdo the matter of Rome by just saying dogmatically it's the, hill, the, the, the city built on seven hills and not look any further. But the primary issue here is that the mountains represents kings, not necessarily a city. This, by the way, was common in the Old Testament for mountains or hills to represent a symbol of a power or a symbol of a rule. I don't want to go over all of that, but you, you know, you, you, we could see all of this kind of information in places like Habakkuk. When you read the, the Babylonian attack coming to, to the uh, northern kingdom or southern kingdom, or you can look at the, the, the books of uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah, or even the book of Psalms has much. So the mountains here, <coughs> and I want to give it to you clearly. Excuse me for coughing again. I, I just can't not seem to shake this cough. The mountains here represent seven empires, seven kings inseparable from their kingdoms. So with that in mind, it, it draws us back to, well, okay, if it says seven hills or represent seven mountains and seven kings, then what that means is they're both related together as one, so what this has, what in fact, if we go back to Daniel chapter 2, it's like I don't want to go there, and I do want to go there. I don't want to go there because it could take so, so much time, but yet you got to go to Daniel 2. Daniel 2 to find out who the kingdoms actually are. <coughs> At least get some insight into it. The image that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 2 uh, in those verses, Daniel's image pictured four kingdoms. Remember Babylon, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greece Empire, the Roman Empire. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's four. That's the great image. And in fact, we saw the head was the gold. And then as you came down, you had the, uh, uh, the descending weakness as depicted by the changing metals. You remember all that? 
But those were the great four world empires. But prior to those four, now listen to this. This, this becomes very interesting. Prior to that, in other words, before the Babylonian captivity of the northern kingdom, of the southern kingdom, uh, there was the uh, it was Egypt and Assyria, Egypt and Assyria, and at the giant, at the time John is writing this letter, Rome is still the great power. <coughs> so that would tell us pretty much. It's already helping us understand the equation here by looking at just who these seven kings are. When it says five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. So, you go back to the beginning of the history uh, as far as uh, Israel is even concerned. Beginning, say, in, 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 in Genesis chapter 12. You don't have to go all the way back. But Genesis chapter 12. Uh, reference, we have Egypt, we have Assyria, those are two. So you've already had two before you see Babylon taking the southern kingdom in the, the book of Daniel, verse 1. And then you have the Medo-Persian, you have Greece, and then Rome. Well, that takes us to six. So John, when John is writing this, five have fallen. <coughs> in fact, you, you can see that very clearly, five have fallen. Well, who are they? Well, five have gone out of existence, and those five are Egypt, Assyria. Then you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. So that's five. And as John writes, there's still one in existence, and that's Rome. John, remember now, is in exile because of the Roman government. Abandoned him to the island of Patmos, where he is being restricted. And uh, so there is six empires right there. And so when you go back to Revelation 17, 10, it says there are seven kings, five have fallen, and we talked about that, and then the one that is present at the time of John, that's Rome, the other has not yet come. So there's only one left to identify. So, but before I identify that, listen to what Henry Morris says. I know that I've read several commentaries, and, and I know John MacArthur quotes Henry Morris. I've got the Henry Morris commentary, so I'm just going to read parts of it. And uh, uh, se several people quote Henry Morris. <coughs> I love it when they quote books of people that I have. But here's what Henry Morris says. Though none of these empires were actually ruled the whole globe, each one was the greatest empire of its time. And he's referencing other empires uh, even beyond these that are listed, Assyria and Egypt. Uh, this category also replaces such kingdoms as Syria, Edom, and we know there's other kingdoms, but they just really weren't much as far as great size or influence. On the other hand, he writes, there are other great and powerful empires in the ancient world, China, India, for example, but these had only certain kind of a relation to God's word or God's people. There were only six real kingdoms of the world that met the criteria uh, at the time of Christ and the apostles. And that's these six that I just mentioned. Uh, the uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those are the six. With all the strongholds, these, the, these categories, uh, uh, he says here, uh, Henry Marr says this, uh, with all the strongholds of the world religion or evolutionary pantheism and idolatrous polytheism, they appropriately are represented as six heads on the great beast that supports the harlot. So in other words, it can't be anymore. Besides, 
God's word we know is is, is accurate. It's not going to be, uh, it's not going to not align with history. And so we learn that five have fallen. Again, those five are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo, Persia, and Greece. Then he says one is that's Rome, and the other has not yet come. Now I'm giving great length here so you can figure this out because I know I get I get information and questions uh, sometimes letters even for sometimes phone calls from people who say what is all of this. Just take a minute and try to explain it. <coughs> and that's what I'm trying to do beyond the coughing. So the one that has not yet come. Well, what is that one? Well, we've talked about that one. You begin to see it developing uh, in Revelation chapter 6, but yet you see the full impact and some more, many more of the details of it in Revelation chapter 13. The future great world kingdom coming is going to be run by the beast. Synonymous with uh, with this is going to be the Antichrist. In other words, he is going to be the one. When he comes, it says he must remain a little while, and that's, that's all it says. It's a brief time. He will have his kingdom, but it will be for a brief time. So in verse uh, 11 says, And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth. You think, wow. Okay, I thought I had it understood until you got to that section. But chapter 12, verse 12, <coughs> tells us that Satan knows he's got a very short time on earth. And so he is going to only have approximately three and a half years to do his damage. And it's going to be through the Antichrist, three and a half years. And that, of course, is the second half of the tribulation period in which he will speak arrogant words. We find this in Revelation 13 against God, blaspheme God, blaspheme God and all about God. Who knows what's going to come out of his mouth? And then the false prophet's going to come along and also in Revelation 13 and demand that the world worship him. <clears throat> so follow. Here it is. The seven hills represent seven kings. Five have fallen, one is Rome, and one is yet to come, which anticipates the final empire of the Antichrist. Remember, this is still going to be future at this time. It is going to be, we're talking about our earth. We're talking about our globe. We're talking about the government that's going to be described in this way. Of course, we're not going to be here the church will be called out, but it's really interesting that the beast, which was and is not himself an eight, and one of the, one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. You've got to put your, I guess, it's going to get a little deeper. But hang on with me here, and I'm going to try to explain this as simply as I can. What this says is the seventh is the kingdom to come, the kingdom of the Antichrist in the future. But not only is it the seventh, it's also the eighth. Well, you say, well, how can it be the seventh and then be the eighth? Well, we already know, don't we? What's going to happen to the Antichrist is he's going to appear to die, remember that, and rise again. There's going to be what I think is a fake resurrection, yet the world will believe it's a real one. So he is both the seventh and he himself will also be the eighth because of the apparent resurrection. I think that's all that's referencing there. I don't think we have to make it so deep and so so uh, impossible to understand. And remember, now, we do have understanding. God has revealed what, what we know about Revelation. God has revealed it to us. 
And remember this, we would not know anything about the book of Revelation were it not for God revealing it to us. Now, the unbelievers don't know. They cannot draw upon the wisdom of God and the mind of Christ to be able to understand any verses of Scripture. But we can. We have a new heart. <clears throat> and we can look to this <clears throat> with an understanding that is, is very real for us. So now you put your, your, your thinking cap on and you can begin to see, okay, I know what's going to happen here. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. So that makes him in two positions. He's number seven in the kingdom and he's number eight. So you look at the last and the final phase of the Antichrist rule after his supposed demise and resurrection, after he destroys every form of religion and demands that the whole world to worship him, which we saw in Revelation chapter 13, you see for the first half, again, he will coexist with a harlot for the first three years. Remember, he comes on the scene in Revelation chapter 6. And you begin to see him taking and conquering without uh, any arrows. He, he just conquers the world, wins it over with peace and with smooth talking. Uh, but then he will demand that the harlot be destroyed. And so really what we're talking about here is we're talking about the end of all false religion. He's going to do away with all of the, the one world religion under the... Uh, uh, with the help of the Catholic Church. He's going to do away with that. We see that in this chapter. I won't be able to get to the end of this chapter today, but we see that here. This will have to be part two a uh, week after next. Next week's Easter, so I'll have to stop and take a break for that one. But it's just an amazing thing. He's going to destroy the whole world uh, religious system except for himself. In other words, he wants the world to turn from all of that and to worship him. And then he will be the final world empire. And then it says he goes to destruction. And he certainly will go there. And you know, it's always interesting to look at this, isn't it? Do you think, well, Satan seems to know all of this. Does he know he doesn't have a chance? Does he know he's going to go to destruction? Does he understand that? And you know, my answer is always, I don't know, and I don't care what he understands. I just don't. I don't have any idea. I just don't know. That, by the way, is the theme of the chapter, his destruction, and that's exactly where he's going. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the man of lawlessness is referred to there as the son of destruction. You look back at that. So he's already known for that. The son of destruction, he's not going to fall like the first five, he's not going to fall like Rome. He is going to be destroyed by God. And I think that's really what he's telling us here. He is going to be destroyed by God. Now, let's go back and I want to read this to you again. Verse 9, Revelation 17. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains, or you can say now that we've gone a little bit further, empires on which the woman sits. In other words, all these religions have been supporting by the seven hills and the seven empires. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen. We looked at these. Uh, and and, and you, you can begin to see, man, th this is looking back, and this is, <clears throat> this is like taking a look at our history <clears throat> from a, a far enough view to picture all of it. Able to see the Egyptian rule, the, the Assyrian rule, or the Babylonian rule, or the Medo-Persian, or the Greeks, or the Roman. <coughs> and then even to see into the future and the rule of the Antichrist. 
It's absolutely incredible to see all of this. This beast, this Antichrist, is going to be like the ruler of all of these other nations, whether it was the ruler of the, the Egyptian pharaohs or whether it's the, the Babylonian leaders, of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we, we look at all of these people, and the, it's like the beast is going to be a combination of all of these and that power. And so this is actually laying out for us a picture of the future. Remember now, this is not following the chronology of Revelation chapter 16. This is going back and looking at a picture of the whole uh, tribulation period. And then we'll get to chapter 18, and we'll look at it again, except from the political side. This is looking at it from the religious side. And you're beginning to see when John began to wonder in verse 7 uh, about this, he says, uh, the angel said to, to John, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast. In other words, the relationship. John is just confused about this relationship between the government of this time, the, the Antichrist, and how evil and wicked he will be. And he's joining forces with the religious sect of the world. How is all that going to happen? And so this is what the angel is showing John, and John's writing to explain to us. And so next week I want to, I want to show you some more of this and to show you how these ten come into play again, and we'll, we'll, we'll begin to understand that when it says seven heads and seven mountains or empires, and then it says the seven kings, describing those, and then it says in verse 11, describing the Antichrist, but then look at verse 12, and the ten kings which you saw, are, or the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, and so now you've got to throw that into the mix. Well, who are they? <coughs> and where in Scripture do we have them being talked about? And we're going to show you exactly what that is. I'll give you a hint. It goes back to Daniel again, the ten toes. And so you remember, you know, these, these visions that, we, that Daniel had. Man, they were very important. They were historical as far as uh, a look of history itself, and they were monumental in the fact of the information we can glean from them. And we look at this and we think, wow, this is all being brought to the end here and shown how all of this fits into the place of this Antichrist, the false prophet, and the, the world religious system. And to think that the end of false religion will not be till then. And boy, it's going down in a tremendous force. Uh, Satan's going to take down much of it, and then God is going, remember, God is going to destroy him. So, whew, thank you for joining me today. I know that's a lot. I hope it wasn't garbled. Again, could I, I, forgive me of coughing. Uh, I, I just can't stop the recording because it messes it up. But thank you for listening. And I hope that you're uh, able to follow along with me. And then next week we'll have an Easter message. And then I will resume this again. And we'll probably even look at the, the Daniel's version of the image covering the ten toes. So, thank you for listening to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. Again, this is William Rogers, and we'll talk to you next time.